coming along and hopefully, I'm hoping the next hour and a half will be useful to you guys in some way in terms of going the distance with life in ministry. Um, I guess just to quickly introduce myself, my name is Anna um, and I thought what I might do is just very briefly um, just tell you a little bit about my background which will hopefully help you to understand a little bit about kind of my approach to looking at burnout because I'm hoping that maybe some of the things we look at today are a little bit different from the mainstream and as I tell my story I, I hopefully it will help you to figure a little bit about where I'm coming from. So um, just so you know I currently have two part-time jobs so I work um, in private practice for the family systems practice which is based in Sydney um, so I do clinical counselling there I see a lot of Christians a lot of people in ministry um, and really looking at a whole range of issues like depression anxiety but a lot of relational issues a lot of work staff um, team issues that, that people come um, to get yeah, to, to do some counselling work around and my other job I work for the Presbyterian Church supporting women who work in ministry um, but previous to that I worked for 10 years um, as a women's minister at a, at a church um, in Sydney and um, it was actually a dream job in a lot of ways like I had a, a really great staff team I was working for um, the team leader who I really got on well with um, and his um, wife like it was a very healthy a work relationship situation but despite this it really didn't take me very long at all before I started to feel the pressures of ministry and I'd often feel quite overwhelmed um, in the job and overwhelmed by kind of the numbers of people I was supposed to be kind of taking care of um, and then kind of turning up to staff meetings on a Monday we'd go through the list and for me there was a sense of if I didn't know what was happening um, for all the women and for their lives um, I would feel a sense of guilt and a sense of inadequacy that I wasn't actually doing what I was supposed to be doing. Um, I think there was probably a bit of pride in there that if someone kind of knew what was happening significantly for somebody else and I didn't know about it, I thought well, I kind of dropped the ball. Um, I also felt in the local community, my obviously married with um, a couple of my children were at the local school, and so I kind of felt a lot of pressure to kind of be godly in my personal life as well. Um, kind of godly as um, a wife, godly as a mother, as a friend. Um, I thought I sort of needed to be a certain kind of way. Um, so I guess I tended at the first, um, in the first few years of the job, I tended to overwork quite a lot, um, to push myself, and I was kind of yeah doing all the classic kind of things that would lead, I guess, to, to burnout. But I guess I realised in the second, um, I guess, part of my ten years there. Um, I think I actually really learned to correct a lot of those things. I actually learned to take um, decent time off, holidays, uh, all the classic things. I'll, I'll briefly talk about some of those classic things that we need to do. But interestingly for me, doing the kind of classic go-tos didn't actually solve the problem for me. So I would still have quite a constant, kind of at times low level, other times higher, but a fairly constant feeling of guilt, of not doing enough, Someone could surely be doing a better job than me. Yeah, sure. yeah, I feel like a bit of an imposter in the role I was in. And I kind of started to realise after a while, I thought, you know what, I've really got to um, do some thinking about what is it that drives me in the way that I do ministry? What is it that drives me in the way that I do relationships? Because it wasn't very sustainable. And trying the classic burnout techniques weren't actually working for me. And that's when I actually went as a client uh, to the family systems practice. And I started to really look at my own family of origin. I started to look at my significant relationships that I had in the early church, um, where I grew up as a teenager. Those really kind of formative relationships 
Um, and that, for me, was mind-blowing in terms of understanding what it was that actually drove the way that I did relationships. So for me, taking a day off, super helpful, of course, but there was something much more <coughs> at the heart level that drives us, I think, to unsustainable um, and unhealthy ways of relating. And that's kind of what I want to talk about really today. Because um, we probably all know the list, you know, which I'm going to, I am going to look at that. It's important that we look at those things. But I do think, in some ways, just telling people you need to stop doing that and start doing this. If you don't actually address the underlying issues about what drives us relationally, what drives us emotionally, I actually think telling someone to do, you've got to do these things, I don't know how productive that is. So that's kind of, that's the, to give you a little bit of idea, that's kind of the approach I take. And a fair few of my ideas are kind of borrowed from, um, it's called Bowen theory, which is kind of, I guess, a, it's a theory of relationships um, that the family systems practice we do borrow a fair bit from. So it's not a Christian theory, so by no means is it perfect, uh, but I think it just has some really useful observations about how we do relationship and some of the predicted, predictable and repeated patterns that we actually get into. And so how come some of them tend to be unsustainable? Hopefully there'll be a chance to also have a bit of a discussion and questions as well. But that's to give you a little bit of a broad idea of kind of where I'm coming from when I think about burnout and relationships. All right, so just, I'm going to just do the quick kind of definition. Though. I think it's important just to quickly, um, just so that we know that we're talking about the same things. So what exactly is burnout? And again, you probably know this because it's, you know, this is a fairly basic thing that we do tend to know. We can kind of just Google burnout and we'll find these things. So burnout is a state of chronic stress that leads to physical and emotional exhaustion, cynicism and detachment, feelings of ineffectiveness and a lack of accomplishment. And symptoms include chronic tiredness, disturbance of sleep and appetite. Can you guys see that okay? Is that all right? Okay. Um, anxiety, depression and anger. Again, fairly straightforward. These would be what we expect to see as symptoms of burnout. Um, here are some interesting um, indicators, actually. Um, one of the books I'll recommend at the end um, is a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzera. I don't know if you guys have heard of that one, but it's on the, bush, the bookstore, I think. He's got some really interesting things, I think, to say about what it is to be emotionally healthy as a Christian. Anyway, so he's got, some, I think, some quite interesting little indicators here. Of, I might be off-centre, like in terms of when I think about life and ministry, and am I doing that in a way that is healthy and sustainable, I know I'm off-centre when I'm anxious, I'm rushing or hurrying, my body is in a knot, I'm doing too many things, my mind cannot stop racing, I'm driving too fast, I'm not able to be fully present with people, I'm irritable about the simple tasks, so that's supposed to say life, tasks of life, like having to wait in line at the supermarket, I'm skimming over time with God. So again, I think it's easy to kind of look at some of those, the classic things and think, oh, that's not really me. In some ways, these are a little bit more helpful in terms of, for me, I think it's actually very helpful to work out what are my indicators that I am off kilter. For me, um, I think I realised over the years that I would present very well in the workplace. People would say, oh, you're so calm. But when I would get home with my children, there were times I just actually could not really stand there basic kid demands, like I just didn't want to, you know, it's like, it's just too much. Um, whereas professionally, like in the ministry world, I was looking like I was coping fine. Um, and I'll talk about that a little bit later on in terms of what that looks like, like what pattern that is. 
and how we can kind of um, diagnose that a little bit more. So here are a couple of um, scary stats about uh, burnout. Um, this is from a 2008 study. 23% of passers, this is an Australian study, 23% of passers had experienced burnout and a further 56 were borderline to burnout. So I think, I think classically, if you get to actual classic burnout, the idea is that um, it will take you a very long time to come back from that. So often people tend to get close to burnout and can kind of, you know, kind of can take some steps back. But if you actually get to full burnout, that's generally a lot harder to recover from. Um, another study um, from 2014, that um, 1,500 people leave pastoral ministry every month in the States. And that will probably be from a variety of, of issues, but I imagine personal, relational burnout issues are a part of that. And this is a really interesting study um, done by a group in the States called Paracaleo, which you might know about. It's a, they do research particularly into church planting um, ministers. And they found in their study back in 2012 that 80% of church planting wives, so the wives of church planters, um, reported suffering from a depressive illness in the first five years of church planting, which is hugely high. Um, and again, we'll look at a pattern that um, I think is a very common pattern that um, ministry wives tend to fall into and tend to be particularly vulnerable for. Okay, so then again, this is um, just another study. Back in 2016, Duke University in the States did um, a study on the key causes of burnout in clergy. And they found a couple of things, and I think these are quite interesting, they found that some of the correlations that, that kind of tended to equate with a level of burnout were first of all, a desire to please others. So that I do a fear of letting people down and not living up to their expectations. They also looked at how prone someone was to feelings of guilt and shame. And they actually determined that shame, which is interesting in terms of opposed to guilt, guilt is more about my actions, shame is actually, it's, it's core to who I am. So it's not just that I've done things I feel guilty about, shame is actually when it becomes much more, it's myself rather than just my behaviour. Which I think ministry is so much about that, isn't it? It's, it's not just a set of behaviours. Ministry and who we are as ministry people is absolutely core to our understanding of who we are. And also people's level of self-compassion. So what level of kindness, patience, understanding of self people had in times of failure and disappointment? Um, and was there an ability to realise in those times that other people would go through similar experiences and therefore in times of failure and disappointment actually feel maybe connected to others rather than isolated? So again, if people felt an ability to connect and relate to others in failure, that, is, that was in a sense a protective factor, where if that feelings of failure and disappointment tended to isolate you in your work and you think, no one, I can't actually talk to anybody about this, then it, it correlated with higher levels of burnout. And um, the fourth one, which we'll talk a little bit more about, is this idea of what we call self-differentiation or differentiation of self from the role. We just, what was the level of the pastor's ability to differentiate or to separate who they were um, and what they value from the role that they were doing? Like, was there actually any kind of separation of that? Or did they, in a sense, see themselves as pastor and that then basically informs exactly who I am. Um, and so in a sense, there was a merger of self-concept with role. 
if that makes sense. I think that's a really tricky one because, again, we don't do ministry so that we're separate <coughs> to our ministry roles. In a sense, we are our ministry roles. But that's a really interesting one, too, I think, to think about is, is how do I manage that um, in terms of when I feel that I'm not being successful or when I feel that I'm not being as effective as I want to be, how do I actually, in a sense, work out that? Like, am I the work? Am I the role? Is there some level of differentiation from that? Now, that's probably interesting one to talk about in terms of whether that's actually um, a helpful idea or not. So I just want to ask you guys a bit of a question to open up. What do you guys actually think when we think about pastoral ministry? Because there are high levels of burnout. Uh, and we probably all know, sadly, um, personal stories of, of train wrecks, which is um, really hard. And I think that's a tricky thing, isn't it, is that when, when, um, when things become very difficult for people in ministry, it doesn't just affect... Um, that ministry family, um, the ripple effects are huge. And you've probably all got examples of people that you know where things often turn out very badly um, for whole churches or communities. What do you think it is about pastoral ministry that makes things like burnout or exhaustion um, or feelings of things being unsustainable um, make that such a concern? Any ideas on what, what's with a, a particular with a paid career? Um, there are so many structures about employers and how they treat their employees and it's just, there can be a cut-off point. Yeah. Whereas in pastoral ministry, it involves your social connections, your family connections, so much more, and there's no one really watching out for you as far as your health goes. Yeah, often, often yeah that can be the case. <coughs> yeah, and it's kind of an all-in, isn't it? Like mm. it, it's not, you know, you don't, it's not a nine-to-five job. Sacrifice is the key word. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and that's one that we're actually, we'll hopefully get and look at that. That'll be, what does that look like here to, to be as G, to sacrifice myself, but in a way that is healthy and sustainable? Like, what does that actually look like without becoming selfish? But how do I, how do, I do that sustainably? I think that's a really, really hard one. Yeah. Any other thoughts on what is it that makes it so challenging? I think it's um, the burden of care. So um, often, um, I, certainly in my early days, I, was, I had a young family, but the young families are looking to you for wisdom looking to your husband for wisdom and you're going through the same thing at the same time so mm. that was one issue um yeah that's yeah mm. i think that's really true yeah that's really true the gap between expectation either real or assumed and mm. reality yeah so what we think people expect from us yeah and perhaps sometimes even what they do expect from us yeah I think that's really true. Yeah, and expectation is something that we'll actually will specifically look at because I think that's really key. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the job is effectively infinite. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It doesn't, does it? Yeah. Yeah, I was having a conversation recently with a friend and he made a really insightful comment saying um, it's actually really unsettling for the congregation because they're actually not equipped on how to handle a pastor that's exhausted or whatever, yeah. so um, that's a unique concern. I think that's really true. And I think it's very interesting that when you're a ministry leader, that in some way they can be this, again, expectation, but also this unspoken expectation that you're not allowed to fall apart. Do you know what I mean? Like everyone else can kind of have their life crisis, but actually I've got to keep being the out of the room. Um, and even just that kind of unspoken expectation around you've got to keep it together, because if you don't keep it together, then we're all toast. Like, I think that's, that's really quite a significant pressure that, again, no one actually necessarily says, but I think there's just, and I certainly felt that, and I wasn't the, the senior pastor by any means, 
but I got myself into a, into a posture, I think, of thinking it's okay for everyone else to fall apart, but I don't have permission to do that. And I think partly that was pride, that was partly me, I think, trying to be Jesus to people, but it's a really, I think it's, a, it's very much a, um, there's a real invitation to that, I think, in ministry. Yeah. Um, all right, we might move on. I mean, there's loads, yeah, I think there's loads more we can talk about. So before we kind of really look at these kind of heart issues and some of these relational factors that are going on, I do just think it's worthwhile just, just briefly looking at what are the practical steps because I would feel I'm a little bit remiss if I don't talk about that. Um, but again, these are, these are probably things that you're aware of. Again, we can Google this and we'll find it. Um, so practical steps, we probably all could just list them off, um, but just worth, just worth saying, I think, briefly. So obviously appropriate work hours, adequate time off and holidays, having interests, hobbies and relationships outside of the ministry, general self-care, obviously you know, exercise, um, sleeping well, um, watching diet, having mentors, friends and family support networks within and outside of the church. And I've written there spiritual health as well, keeping your own relationship with God alive and vital. And that very first study um, the Saundercott Brown one, that was a real key finding they had actually, was um, in terms of as a protective factor to burnout, the people who work in ministry, their own journey with Jesus, like their <coughs> own relationship with God, was actually vital to what their mental health looked like. I um, mean, again, that doesn't mean that we don't struggle when we're, when we're staying um, strong with God. It doesn't mean we don't have mental health issues, but... That really is a key one, I think it's worth saying, that actually keeping myself remaining in Christ, um, yeah, really, I guess, paying attention to and investing in that, as, as we all know, is, is an important one worth saying. So I guess I want to um, now move into this idea of kind of, how do we become a bit more self-aware around what are our particular vulnerabilities um, as people, what are our particular and unique struggles that each one of us, and it's going to be slightly different for each one of us, what will be some of our own vulnerabilities um, to issues of exhaustion and burnout? And I've just got a little quote from Calvin here I like. It says, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And so hopefully um, in this conference you've, you've been doing some really good soaking up of God's word. Um, and I guess what I'm trying to do today I think, is to try to think about, well, how do we get, gain that knowledge of ourselves? So there's not a huge lot of Bible content, but um, in a sense it's more about how do we actually get to know ourselves better? Because that's part, part of wisdom. Um, so, and as I said, I'm particularly going to look at the way that burnout looks within, our, within the relationship system, because obviously ministry is so intrinsically relational. And I guess it's fair to say that when we think about our general challenges that we have relationally, and you don't have to be in ministry long before you come up against you know, complex challenges in relationships, they come, first of all, generally, don't they, out of our own sinful, broken natures. Like relationships are difficult and hard, and we know that because of we live in a broken, sinful world and we're broken, sinful people working with broken, sinful people. And yet, it, they also come specifically, and that's what I'm actually going to talk about this afternoon, they also come specifically out of our own relational and emotional immaturities, our own dependencies and sensitivities. And we're going to talk about a little bit about that today. 
So hopefully that makes sense. There's a sense where we all, we're all vulnerable to struggle, and yet each one of us has got a very unique story that will make us specifically vulnerable, and in a sense specifically hardwired and primed to have certain challenges. So I guess particularly what I want to look at with you guys is what are the heart issues and what are the relationship processes that contribute to that pattern of overwork and sustainable service? We can take it. We can take it. Feel free to put it in the So that's kind of what I want to look at with you guys this afternoon is what actually goes underneath. So again, we can list off those things, can't we, that will, that will lead us to unsustainable work practices, but what drives those unsustainable work practices? Does that make sense? Because there's no point just saying to someone, this is what you need to do, you need to take more holidays and you need to take more time off. If you haven't actually looked at what, what actually drives the fact that I don't feel comfortable to take time off, or that I'm in a pattern of overwork and unsustainable service. So we're going to have a little look at that. All right, just to wake you guys up. What do you reckon these pictures have in common? Stress. <laughs> yes, intimidating. Out of control. Out of control. Yeah. So there's a sense, I've picked them because they hopefully are things that maybe, not hopefully, but that might invoke a sense of fear or a sense of threat. Um, and so what we're going to actually look at is, is the way that fear and threat work relationally. So obviously, we've got very classic um, physical threats there, car crash and a gun. Um, and I guess when we think about the idea of anxiety, I think we most often think about it with event-based things. So it's standing up in front of a group of people. Um, you know, like maybe your heart starts beating, you know, you start kind of breathing a little bit, your eyes don't, you go into what we all probably again know is the, an the anxious or the stress response. If you've got to get up and give a talk, if you've got to sit an exam, um, if there's something that's event-based, if you were actually in physical danger, if you walked out and someone did pull a gun at you, if you walked out and over dinner tonight some kind of wild animal came in, <laughs> <laughs> um, your body would go into the stress response, wouldn't it? Your body would go into that, or it's a classic, what we call the fight-flight, which you've probably all heard about, where we kind of basically get ready to stand up and fight whatever the danger is, or we go into withdrawal, runaway, shutdown mode. And we're used to thinking about that in terms of physical, actual events, aren't we, I think, in terms of the, the ones here on the left. What I think we're less likely to think about is the way that the stress response works in the relationship space. So, for example, I walk into church um, one day and there's someone that I had a difficult conversation with in the week. And I came away from that conversation feeling, yeah, not very good about how it turned out. I walk into church on Sunday, and there they are. I kind of try to make eye contact to have a nice connection, and they just kind of turn away. And no one knows, but inside, bang, up goes the stress response. I'm kind of feeling nervous. I'm feeling kind of a little bit unhinged, a little bit worried. So that's what we're kind of going to look at a bit today, is the way in which the classic anxious stress response is alive and well under the surface in a whole lot of relationship processes that we're involved in that we just don't think about. And that's what we'll have a little bit of a look at. So this is this idea of what we call relationship stress. 
And I'm going to, we're going to look at the way that that actually links to emotional exhaustion and burnout. So as I said, the idea of the, the anxiety response or the stress response, which is that physiological response, which is an automatic emotional reactiveness that we experience when we have a, a threat, whether it's perceived or real, if that makes sense. So we will have the same stress response whether someone pulls a gun at me or whether someone, whether I perceive someone is upset at me when they give me a bit of a look. Does that make sense? Um, I can even sometimes you know, pick up the phone to my teenage daughter and the tone of her voice can just spark that up in me. And if you think about examples constantly, we're always kind of being triggered with a certain level of that anxious response in the relationship space. But it's kind of under the surface and we often don't talk about it or acknowledge it, but it really contributes to the way in which we operate relationally. So I'll just read on here. Our perception of threat, which leads to anxiety and fear and worry, will be impacted by our own unique experiences growing up in significant relationships. For example, our family of origin, so that's basically mum, dad, siblings, grandparents, extended family, and also significant relationships in, in our school years, in our church years. So our unique sense of what triggers us off is actually linked to some of those past experiences that we've had. And that's what we're going to look at, is the, that role of what we call emotional reactiveness in burnout and exhaustion. And I'll, I'll hopefully I'll explain what I mean as we go along. That's not very clear. So a question I want to ask you guys is, if we think about ministry life, and if you think about it in terms of things that might be threats, again, we don't normally use that kind of word, but um, a threat is anything where, in a sense, just the equilibrium gets a little bit wobbly. Do you know, when we just feel a little bit insecure, we feel a bit unsafe, things not going as they maybe should be. Um, and we, when we talk about that, there's actually two kinds of stress that happen relationally and in our lives. And we have what we call <coughs> acute, acute stress, which is normally, it's actually linked to an event. So it might be, you might have a very definite event, which is, I don't know, we're under budget or something, or I've got a deadline for something I'm supposed to do. It's a real event, and it's also time limited. So that's what we call an acute stress. And we've probably all got examples of things that call up, cause what we call an acute level of stress. What we often don't think about is the fact that there's also chronic stress, which is not time limited, and it's actually not linked to a specific event. So again, that's that kind of that lot, maybe lower level, chronic stress that can be from a sense of, I can't lose it because people are depending on me. Do you know what I mean? Or I'm really exhausted, but I've got to keep turning up and I've got to keep being the leader. Does that make sense? So it's not actually linked to an event and it's not time limited, but it just continues on. And although we don't necessarily think about it as a threat, in some ways, it, it, it kind of kicks in to that same stress or anxious response. We're kind of at a heightened level of stress and anxiety, if that makes sense. And it can be in that, just in that relational space, even if, as you're running a staff meeting, you know, even as you're trying to ride for talk or run a kids' ministry, there can just be this heightened level of stress, which we call a chronic stress that goes on. So I'd love to just ask you guys, what do you think are some of the real threats or some of the real stresses of ministry that are... Um, that are acute, that are actually real and time limited? And what might be examples of some that are more chronic 
and not necessarily attached to events and aren't actually, there's no time limits that actually don't actually stop. So that makes sense. When we think about the stress response, it's designed to actually work for acute stress. Think about that. Like if, if I've got to sit an exam, like as like, you know, I've got to come up here and give a talk. Um, it actually makes sense that my body switches onto a slightly higher level of stress so that I can be effective. Like we probably all know that from kind of anxiety 101. But when the event is over, my body returns and it stabilizes again. And that's how our body stress response is supposed to work, it kind of ebbs and flows. But with chronic stress, it stays up. And because it's not actually attached to a real event or a real kind of threat, it just stays at this heightened level, if that makes sense. And nothing actually brings it back down. So I'd love to ask you guys, what are some of the real kind of things that maybe the time limited? And what might be some of the things in ministry and life that are kind of fairly chronic and ongoing, do you think? Sundays. Sundays. Yes. That's an interesting example of one that maybe is both, to think in some ways. What would, where would you place that? As Would you place that as chronic or would you place that as acute? Acute. Yeah, okay. So there's a sense of build up to Sunday, it, it happens, it is over. And then you eat in for the next one. And then it kind of, yeah. So, so it has got a chronic nature, but there is an ebb and a flow. Yeah, yeah. The seven deadline accompanying that. Yes. So an acute, that would be an acute one, time limited. Yeah, yeah. Any other examples of threats or stressors that, that happen for us in ministry? Cams, youth knives. Yeah, so anything that's kind of event-based, like yeah, there's a deadline, people are going to turn up, um, we actually need something to you know, physically happen and we need to kind of function well and the team to function well. There's a whole lot of acute, yeah, acute very real stressors that happen for us as we're running a church ministry. That's right, there's so many things. What well, might be some of the kind of chronic, and again, this is the interesting thing in the way in which the idea of perception or imagined threats take place. So often chronic stress can be around my perceived expectations of others. Um, or um, I wonder if people, yeah, think I'm doing a good enough job. Um, yeah, what, what happens if, um, you know, this time next year, Everyone's left the church. Um, what do you? Any examples of ones that you think are more chronic? Lack of clarity as to what you're supposed to be doing yes. and what success means. Yes. Yeah. That's a really good example, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, perceived gossip. Yeah. Mm. People talking about you. About yes. You there. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. I think to listen to uh, people that have huge emotional problems, uh, you mustn't take them on yourself, but there's a tendency to do that sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And that can be, I think, uh, that can be maybe an acute stress at the time, but I think you're right that the chronic stress of that continues in terms of how am I supposed to respond? Did I, did I respond in the right way? Do I need to fix this? Um, you know, what, what would it look like for me to... Yeah, be, be being who God wants me to be. There's that kind of that ongoing stress and worry. And that would cause you blood pressure to be up. That's right. Time. And it doesn't actually have a, it's not time limited. It just keeps on going. That's right. But there's a chronic nature to that as well. As well as maybe the acute conversation that you had. Yeah, but there's a chronic nature to, to pastoral care. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, being a lone female, I've Yes, absolutely. <coughs> Yeah. And um, I, 
I can't speak for every generation, but I think for my generation too, even just a, that voice that says you shouldn't be here, almost. <laughs> yeah. It's actually true, isn't it? Like, yeah, it's very fascinating. I found that exactly as I was driving up, I thought, I'm just going to be in the minority. Like, I just walked in thinking, okay, just brace yourself. Like, yeah, it was almost like the stress response. It wasn't like I was, you know, thinking all these horrible men are going to attack me. But <laughs> it's just that, you know, just the stress, like, it's just this kind of almost, um, yeah, almost kind of, almost imperceptible. Like, it's kind of automatic, but just, just there's an anxiety level that just goes up. It's almost like a bracing of yourself. And sometimes you don't realise that you're actually doing that. And that's, yeah, that's a really good example of a chronic stress that you carry that you don't even necessarily process that that's happening. That's right, but you're at a heightened level of what we call arousal or awareness. Yeah, maybe just because of your ministry context or, again, some of maybe your expectations that might be perceived. Kathy in the um, talk on developing women leaders made the comment that women, if they don't get feedback, assume they're doing the wrong thing. Yeah. Where men pretend often to think they don't get feedback, they're doing okay. Yeah, so, exactly right. So it's, the, yeah, it's the level of perception there, isn't it? That's right. That, yeah, so again, this idea of an imagined or a perceived threat, it might, you might be doing an absolutely fantastic job, and no one doubts that. But because of that lack of feedback for you, there becomes an imagined or perceived threat. And what's interesting in terms of the way that that stress affects us. Studies actually show it does not matter whether it's real or perceived. It, it has no difference to us physiologically. It has no difference to us mentally in terms of whether that's a real acute stress or whether it's a perceived or imagined. Um, and we will talk a little bit about that um, in another section, which actually is coming up now, in terms of what are the kinds of things that do feed into the way we perceive or imagine certain threats, because we're all going to be quite different. Yeah. All right, and I'm sure there's many more things we can keep chatting about, but hopefully this is just making you think a little bit about some of the unique things that you're maybe facing. So what I'd love to talk with you guys now, and I'm going to give you um, at the end a handout, so please do come and get that at the end, um, which gives you a whole bunch of questions to actually reflect upon um, these relationship sensitivities. And I'll explain what I mean by them, and then hopefully, you know, maybe over the next couple of weeks, if you'd like to, you can take um, these questions and over a nice coffee or a cup of tea, go and relax somewhere. And if you want to, you can actually do them for yourself. And they, they're a little bit, hopefully, helpful in terms of getting you thinking about, again, this idea of your own unique set of things that are going to stress you out. All right, so I'll explain what I mean by relationship sensitivities. So you can see the little meerkats there. Um, and I, I love meerkats. They're one of my favourite animals at the zoo. They're so adorable. But the interesting thing about meerkats are these, is they're often like this, aren't they? Like they're often alert. And you can physically see it in terms of their arousal and their alertness to threat. Like it's just there in their little bodies as they stand up and they look around. In some ways, that's kind of what we're like on the inside with little meerkats. Like they're really actually quite acutely aware of things that are happening, even though the exterior appears very calm. We learn, we learn, don't we, how to behave in ways that are socially acceptable, but often there's a lot of anxiety and fear underneath. And I love the fact that the meerkats, they don't hide that. They're just, they're just out there. They're just out there with it. So again, this is just a theory. This is not for the gospel, but I think there's some helpful ideas here. This again comes from Bowen theory, um, which... Um, at the end, I'll recommend a book if you're interested to learn a little bit more about it. So just very briefly, as I said, Bowen theory, it's just a theory 
Um, it, it comes from a psychiatrist called Murray Bowen, who back in the 1940s, 50s in America did a whole lot of um, observational research on families. So you know how kind of back in the back in the day there was all this really interesting psychology that ethically you'd never be allowed to do anymore, but it's fascinating. <laughs> anyway, so they um, they actually hospitalised whole families that had members who were schizophrenic. Um, and it could even be up to two years um, um, in the, this health centre. And he and his team started to observe families that had a chronically ill member, like a, someone with a chronic mental illness. And he, he observed these predictable and repeated patterns that were alive and well in these families. And then he came to see that to a lesser extent, even in families that we consider healthy um, and not sort of chronically unwell, these same patterns of, of stress and anxiety, um, in a sense, are, are kind of around um, for all of us. And this is this idea of these relationship sensitivities. So this is, yeah, the theory based, the idea is this, is that if you think about the way we are growing up in our families, so you think about a little um, newborn baby, there was a little baby here before, it was gorgeous, or another one. If you think about little, very young babies, um, they are just so, like the way we're born, the way God's made us, is we're, we're hardwired, aren't we, for relationship. There's a sense where a baby will absolutely physically track, you know, what their mother or father or another person is doing. Their, their, their body actually physically is attuned to connect with others. There's a sense where our ability to attune and to connect, um, to pay attention to what's going on around us, absolutely correlates with our ability to do relationship, doesn't it? It's a God-given gift, that ability to notice and to be sensitive and attuned to others. So if we have no sensitivity or attunement to others, then we won't do life very well. Uh, we're gonna find it hard to connect. So that ability to kind of be, um, to work with others, to kind of pick up social cues, whether someone's um, disappointed, whether they're happy, whether they're scared, helps us to do relationships well. But the idea for us is that for each one of us in our unique family background, because we um, all come from families that are not perfect, um, and you know, all of us are creating families that are not perfect as well, we're all broken people, there's a sense where that ability to be attuned becomes more hypersensitized in certain areas, depending <coughs> on in a sense, the emotional climate of the family that we grew up in. And the idea, the theory is, is that there are four key sensitivities um, and these handouts will help you to explore your own. The idea is that there's four key sensitivities that people tend to be more highly attuned to. Um, and normally what you'll find is that you might be more attuned to one or two of them out of the four. So I'll just explain what they are and we'll see if they resonate for you. So, the, so expectations were something that came up. So there's a sense of, <clears throat> when we say expectations, it's expectations of ourselves. <coughs> expectations of others and again it's real and perceived expectations so questions you'd ask yourself is well what were the expectations in the family that I grew up in what were the spoken and the unspoken expectations um, were the expectations of different family members the same or different in terms of as I think about myself and my siblings were there kind of different expectations of us um, were the expectations low or high what were my expectations of the family that I was in? Were those expectations met or were they disappointed? So there's a whole range of questions around 
that idea of expectations of ourselves and others, whether they're real or perceived, and they're kind of really deeply rooted in what our own unique family experience was. The next one is attention. Uh, again, that can be positive attention, negative attention. And again, questions around that would be, um, you know, how much attention did you receive in your family? Did that attention tend to be positive or negative? Was it similar or different um, to the level of attention given to others in the family? <coughs> the next one is distress. Sorry, I'm not going in the same order there. Um, <coughs> so questions around that would be, who tended to get upset in the family that you were brought up in? Who tended to notice people's upsets? Who, who tried to soothe and smooth over the upsets in the family? Who created the upsets in your family? How do you go sitting with other people's distress? Is that something you can sit fairly comfortably with? Or is that something that really stirs up uncomfortableness and you just want to jump in and fix it? Um, the interesting thing about distress is it's about our own distress, but it's about the way in which we cope with other people's distress. And what's really interesting, I think, again, when we think about this idea of our relational postures and hardwiring and what can lead to burnout, and I think it's such an important one in ministry, and I had to really think about this for myself, is, yeah, how do I go when I, when I pick up that someone is distressed? <coughs> Am I able to tolerate my own discomfort <coughs> and my own distress around the fact that they're upset? Do I jump in to fix things quickly so that I actually feel better? And that's one of the really challenging things I think in any kind of work that's intrinsically about helping people, which is very much what ministry is. It's about coming alongside people. But sometimes, because of our sensitivities, our helping efforts can actually be a fair bit about alleviating our own discomfort if that makes sense. And so part of this idea when we talk about being able to manage anxiety is increasing my tolerance for distress, for my own distress and others. So it's not about becoming callous and hard-hearted, but it's thinking, how do I go with that in ministry? And does it lead me to overwork? Does it lead me to take responsibility for things that maybe are not my own? So it's just an interesting one to think about. The next one is approval. Um, who was most approved of in your family? How much are you motivated by pleasing people? Um, I think it's really tricky when you are in ministry. It's a very, it's a public role. There's a lot of scrutiny about who you are and whether you're doing a good enough job or not. Again, whether that's spoken, unspoken, perceived or real. But again, whether you, um, yeah, that can often lead to, to your own family experience. So although the, the attunement that we had growing up and the certain dependency that we had growing up as children is necessary, I've got you think about that, that the attunement and dependency of kids is really necessary growing up, because we're broken, because we're, we're, we're sinful and flawed, we're actually prone to becoming overly sensitised and overly attuned in certain relationship patterns. That's kind of the idea. Um, so for example... Understanding what people expect of us, um, being able to respond and read that it's just is very helpful, but when you add a dose of fear and insecurity and worry about what people will think of me and am I doing my job properly, the sensitivities can actually really impact the way in which we do ministry in life and are we doing that sustainably. Um, for example, just a quick um, 
in my own family of origin. Um, so I'm the youngest of, of two siblings. I've got an older brother. And um, in my teenage years, my older brother was quite rebellious and he was quite challenging and, and quite difficult. He's turned out pretty good. But um, certainly growing up, that was the, the pattern in my family. I became very determined to be the good girl that wasn't ever going to cause problems because there was a lot of attention. There was a lot of energy put into helping my brother through his schooling year. So I determined I'm not going to be like that. Like I was quite reactive in my good behaviour. And so for me, being a people pleaser and going under, under the radar and never being someone that causes a problem um, very much fed into the way I did ministry, if that makes sense. And when we think about church, what a great gift that church is a family, but oftentimes unresolved issues within our family can actually just come into the way in which we do church family life. So again, for me, in my own family, I think some of the things I hadn't resolved in my own family Church, for me, was going to be the place in which I could accomplish the things that were deficits for me growing up. And I think that was kind of what led me to some unsustainable, unhelpful patterns of relating in ministry. So I thought I was kind of serving faithfully, and in some ways I was, but there was a, quite a lot of insecurity and fear behind the ways in which I was serving, if that makes sense. So there was kind of a deeper heart issues around the postures. And again, everyone's going to say, oh, you're doing such a great job. But for me, there was actually things going on that were quite unhelpful in the way I was doing ministry. Um, all right. How are we going for time? All right. So I want to talk to you guys, um, and then I'm going to get you to have a little bit of a uh, think about some things. Um, there's this concept of what we call relationship fusion. So, yeah, you've got the circles here. So basically, this is an idea that Again, um, if you look at the two circles there uh, at, the, at the beginning, the idea, I guess, is that none of us, if you think about the way in which we operate as people, <coughs> we're not um, complete isolated islands. There's a sense where God has made us for relationship. So that, um, the one at the end there, there's a sense where we need to overlap with others. So when we think about the way that we understand ourselves, when we think about our own value, when we think about our own beliefs about who we are and our purpose, so much of that is tied into other people, isn't it? It is tied into the way that we do relationships. And obviously, um, God, God is above, above that as well. What's interesting, though, about relationship fusion is getting a little bit clearer on to what extent do we tend to look a little bit more like the middle one, where relationships start to take, because of those insecurities because of the unresolved <coughs> sensitivities we have, to what extent do the relationships that we're in tend to take up more space of who we are than they should, if that makes sense. So if you, if you look at the, the end one, each person has just got more, kind of more space to do their own life. So that they're connected and they're attached, but there's actually a sense of life energy and direction and purpose and individuality and autonomy that I can still actually have some freedom to live life and to do what I would like to do. The one in the middle, it's actually what we call fusion, where people actually get fairly caught up um, in the relationship space. And again, I think ministry is a really interesting example of that because we do want to come alongside people. That's what we're doing. That's what we're there for, aren't we? We're there to love people and connect with people and to tell them about Jesus. 
and to have real, authentic, close relationships. That's, that's probably why we do ministry. <coughs> and yet, one of the dangers, I think, in a highly relational space like ministry is to what extent the relationships that we're in tend to inform um, a big sense of who we are in terms of am I being effective, am I being a failure, am I being a success. So for example, for me, was I, when I was working in ministry, I was meeting up with um, a lady one-to-one, you know, we've probably all done that kind of thing, I'm reading the Bible, um, things were going really well and I felt like I was doing a fantastic job and it was great to go to staff meeting and tell people, oh yeah, things are going really great and she started coming along to a Bible study and she went to church a few times um, and then after a while she just stopped coming and she started being very sporadic um, to Bible study. she stopped coming to church. When she saw me in the street, she kind of actively ignore me. Um, and that informed so much the way I saw myself as whether I was effective or not in ministry. Does that make sense? So I think I became very vulnerable to how much of who I am as an effective minister of the gospel, how much of that is getting bound up in outcomes that are actually in other people rather than being faithful to do what God is asking me to do. Does that make sense? And this is a really tricky one because surely we're in ministry because we want to see changes in other people. Like we do want to see people's lives transformed by the gospel. Like that's why we do ministry. We're not there to not see people change. And yet I think we become very vulnerable to um, kind of measuring you know, our efficacy, measuring our failure or success on things that are actually are largely outside of our control and that are God's domain in terms of the transforming of people's hearts. So it's just helpful to notice that, is when I feel like I've had a win or when I feel like I've had a failure, how much do I know about how much I kind of go up and down? Am I kind of getting too fused with a self-concept that's very fused with outcomes in other people? Does that make sense? Versus God's actually called me to be a certain person under him and that's where my worth is, that's where my efficacy is and in a sense the outcomes belong to belong to God but I think for me that was a really difficult one to and still is you know um to get my head around when I do counseling work with people it's really easy for me if they're doing well you know they make good progress to think oh man I'll do this you know <laughs> and then if people aren't doing so well then to actually let that um be about me which is I think a really unhelpful when we think about what it is to serve Jesus faithfully, sometimes there'll be things that actually are encouraging, sometimes things will be very discouraging. And just to get a bit of a sense of how much of self has got caught up in that space. And I think, again, I think there are real correlations um, for exhaustion, um, getting resentful, giving up, frustration, burnout. When we have too much of ourselves tied up in outcomes that actually are out of our control. So I was going to get you guys to do a reflection exercise. Um, I don't know if we've got enough time though. We've got half an hour. Is that, are, you, are you guys sort of, are you still sort of alive? <laughs> <laughs> sort of hot, but okay. Is everyone okay? Um, what I might get to do, just so that I sort of stop talking for a little while, is I'm not going to get you to actually talk to the people next to you because whenever I'm in a workshop and people do that, I just think, oh, don't make me talk to me next to me, I just want to sit. So anyway, <laughs> <laughs> send your anxiety levels, do not go up. You can just do this sitting on your own, in the quiet. 
Um, some of you actually probably extroverts will be like, oh, bummer, I wanted to talk to you. Um, but they might just think, oh, thank goodness, I don't have to actually try to have a discussion. Anyway, so what I'd love you to do, um, and this, there's, there's a copy of this in your handout, actually, so I might quickly hand these out, um, so you've got space if you want. I'll quickly give you guys Sorry. Hopefully there's enough for everyone. If not, I'm sure we can work out a way of getting them in So I'm just going to give you a few minutes because we don't have heaps of time, but just so we can have a little break and your mind can just slow down for a little bit and you can stop hearing my voice. I'd love you guys just to, um, hopefully you can see there's a couple of pages in it says reflection exercise. And it's up on the screen if you didn't get one. Yeah, maybe you can just look at the screen as well. It's actually on the app. Oh, there you go. It's on the app. I didn't even know there was an app. So there you go. That's awesome. So I'm just going to read it out and I'm just going to give you a few moments. I'm sure I won't give you long enough, but it will just give you a bit of a chance for a quiet reflection. Oh, please. So, what I'm going to ask you guys to do is this. Think of a recent concrete example, an interaction, it could be with a family member, a church member, a colleague, where you felt that one of those relationship sensitivities was triggered, or that you felt like you got fused, that idea of a kind of, you know, I really got caught up in that, my sense of who I was got caught up in that, or this idea of I lost self. In the, in, the trans, in the transaction. So a few questions. What do you notice about the way you responded? Actually, the questions might not be exactly the same. Sorry, I think I added one up here. What do you notice about the way you responded? What thoughts, physical feelings and feelings did you have? Physical reactions? I think I've added this one. Sorry, it might not be on your sheet. How did you feel afterwards? So what I find, a fascinating thing I found um, when I was doing my kind of counselling being, you know, being a client, was this sense of when I feel resentful about something, how have I contributed to my own feeling of resentment? I found that a very challenging idea because I think I would often overwork and I feel, you know, oh goodness, I've got so much to do. And I'd spend a fair bit of time having this low level of resentment. And then I was challenged with the question, what am I doing to contribute to that? Like how am I actually choosing to overwork? What invitations um, to be over, like to overdo things, am I actually taking up rather than being more responsible for myself and being less used? So that's that question there is that idea because often the way we feel afterwards, after an interaction, can be really quite a helpful diagnostic as to whether we felt we were able to stay fairly calm and able to actually interact in a helpful way or whether we felt that we actually, with that anxiety going up, um, we actually acted in ways that were probably not sustainable at all. And kind of out of fear rather than out of a sense of, a, a calmer sense of this is who God would have me be. So I'll just give you guys a few minutes, is that okay? Just to, if you can just think of maybe a concrete example that might correlate for you. All right, we might come back. I know I haven't given you anywhere near enough time, but if that was a little, you just closed your eyes and had a little rest, that was fine too. <laughs> just gave you a little break. That might be something that you, yeah, want to have a bit more to think about in the coming weeks.
This is often a real technique we do use in counselling. We often get people to think of concrete examples. Because what's really interesting is that we, um, we often, I think, um, when we think about the way that we relate, I think the interesting thing about concrete examples, you can't, you can't hide from them. Like, I think, you know, you kind of talk about the fact that I want to be a certain kind of person in life and ministry. But when you actually look at concrete interactions that you have already had, you kind of can't hide from that. And what can be really useful in looking at specific concrete examples is what you can actually learn about some of your automatic reactive patterns and processes. Like when the anxiety kicks in, what do I tend to do? You know, do I tend to go into fight mode, flight mode? Do I tend to withdraw, kind of accommodate, acquiesce? Do I tend to get de defensive and angry? So even just thinking about, and it might be that the things are quite different with different people. Like there might be different members of your staff team that you find yourself reacting quite differently to, or different members of your family that you think, you know what, with that family member, I really arc up and get angry quickly. Or with that particular person, I find it very hard to say what I believe mm -hmm. and, and, and to actually have a calm opinion. So it's quite useful to think about those automatic patterns that we're in, where we kind of lose who we want to be and we end up feeling resentful or frustrated or guilty because of the way we reacted. It can be quite useful to go back over concrete examples and kind of reflect um, and again, there's a lot of interesting research around just that ability to self-reflect. Um, and if we can do helpful self-reflection, the way in which that correlates again to, to healthy, sustainable ministry patterns. So that's just a little, just a small little exercise you might find useful. Particularly when you find yourself ruminating, you know, over something that happened that just didn't feel like it went very well. Kind of slowing it down. That's often what we say to our clients. Is it's really about slowing it down and observing the interactions so that you can actually learn. Um, that's, in a sense, that's really the first step, is to slow down and observe, rather than getting caught up in that automatic default kind of stress and anxiety space. So just in the remaining time, I just want to quickly chat to you about a couple of these um, repeated and predictable relationship patterns. Now these patterns are, um, are kind of everywhere, but they tend to be more activated in times of stress, um, and anxiety and tension. And again, they do really correlate, I think, to, um, into our ability to be in healthy and sustainable relationships. And again, you'll find in your handout, there will be some reflection questions specifically around a couple of these ideas too, to help you kind of go away and have a think about, oh, is that something that I might be falling into? So the first one I wanted to have a chat to you guys about is this idea of over and under functioning. What's that? Uh, this table, can you work? Uh, is that in here? No, that picture isn't, sorry. Um, the questions, I think there's some questions around, around it, but not the actual, so yeah, it's not a great graphic, but it's supposed to be a seesaw. In terms of the idea it's showing <coughs> is often in relationships, um, and these are particularly two-person relationships, um, a pattern that can be present is what we call over and under functioning. It's this idea of over and under responsibility. And I think this is a classic one in ministry. And I'll explain what I mean. Has anyone ever heard of that term before? Is that one that, yeah, probably some of you might be familiar with it. So the idea is that we end up in a situation where the person on top here starts to kind of 
take responsibility for the other person. So the other person might start off being in some form of um, predicament, some kind of helplessness, some kind of stress or struggle. And because of, again, going back to our sensitivities, because it's really hard to watch people struggle, one of our really default ways of behaving is to start being overly responsible for someone else. So things um, that would involve is taking responsibility for someone else's thinking, for someone else's feelings, for someone else's experiences, for someone else's decisions. And again, it can be really challenging in ministry because it actually matters, doesn't it? When we see people making good decisions or unhelpful decisions, it should matter to us. Like, it should matter when people make wise and godly decisions or when they don't, and when we see them making decisions that don't put the gospel first. But yet, it's very easy to step into that idea of being overly responsible um, in those relationships. So I think it, this kind of pattern happens when, um, when we tend to give advice a lot, we tend to step in and rescue rather than being a resource to people. Um, it can happen in marriages, in parenting, work teams, friendships. One person becomes a little bit more needy and dependent and the other person kind of steps up to kind of do the helping for them, if that makes sense. And the interesting thing is that if you're someone who tends to be overly responsible for others, you do kind of get a bit of kudos from that, you know? Like you're seen as someone who's fairly reliable. Um, you're the competent one. You're the go-to person. Um, you're indispensable and in control. And yet what you inadvertently might be doing is not ne necessarily helping that person to take responsibility for their own life. Whether that's their own personal life, whether that's their growth as a Christian. And again, it's a really hard one, isn't it? Because we don't want to just be hands-off. We do want to come alongside and love people. But a challenging question is, are my helping efforts actually helping or are they hindering that person's growth? So as I think about in my church, wanting people to grow in their relationship with God, mature in Him, what does that look like for me to come alongside people rather than to over-function and to be overly responsible for them? if that makes sense. Because again, it's tricky because if I over-function for someone and if I kind of help out and step in, you know, kind of quickly to alleviate the problem, in the short term, that actually makes me feel a bit better because I've done something. I've, you know, maybe I feel like I've done something to help or people see that I've done something to help. In the longer term, I might not actually be helping that person to, to take responsibility for their own life, their own faith and who they are. Um... Often a really interesting and helpful diagnostic is if you're someone who's over-functioning in some areas of life, you tend to under-function in other areas of life. So we all like to pretend we're over, you know, it's, we want to be the over-functioner, but the interesting thing about being the over-functioner is it's just as anxiety-driven as being the under-functioner. So if I have a need to be a helper, if I have a need to be the competent and in-control one, that's just as much an anxious, insecure position as the person who's needy and inviting me to do that for them, if that makes sense. So for me, a classic example of that in ministry was that idea of I felt I needed to be the one who was responsible, I wasn't going to fall apart, you know, I would 
meet up with women and I'd be reading the Bible, I'd be having pastoral conversations, but you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily um, feel that I, it was okay for me to struggle. And then at home with my children, I think I would tend to underfunction. Like I would feel resentful of their need of me, if that makes sense. So again, it might be that you underfunction in your health, like you don't take care of yourself physically. Maybe you underfunction in your finances. Maybe you underfunction in your family. If you're overfunctioning somewhere, there will tend to be some kind of underfunctioning going on. That's quite a helpful thing. As I think about all my different spheres of life, is there a general similar level of functioning? Am I kind of the same person I am at work, in the ministry space, in the public space, to what I am at home? That's just a helpful to kind of work out, am I being sustainable? Am I being healthy in the way that I'm doing this? If it looks quite different in terms of my public and my private, there could be an indication that there's, there's an over-responsibility going on there. Does anyone have any questions around that? Because it is a tricky one to think about. Because of course we do have responsibilities to others. Um, does anyone have any questions or pushback or anything that? Is Can it you just explain what an overfunctioning when you said it was um, taking responsibility for someone else's feelings? So I'd see overfunctioning like a helicopter parent taking over. You know, yeah. I, bring my, I bring the lunch to you when you've forgotten to bring it. That's a task. But what's it mean to be overfunctioning for someone else's? Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because when you think about it, I think at some point, and probably, you know, doesn't take too long, if you're going to be a genuine ministry worker, at some point, you're going to have to have a hard conversation with somebody. Um, and at some point, you're going to have to tolerate the fact that that might actually make someone not feel great. Do you know what I mean? Like in terms of being able to be fairly upfront and honest about what it looks like to follow Jesus, so. So I think for me, again, where I needed to learn about not over-functioning for people's feelings was I needed to be able to tolerate better the fact that sometimes I needed to have a hard conversation with someone that might not necessarily leave them feeling fantastic. Does that make sense? So it's not about you know, being horrible and judging people, but inevitably in authentic, mature adult relationships, you know, there are going to be conversations that we don't just smooth everything over and make people feel okay all the time. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's kind of taking responsibility for other people's feelings. Yeah. Which I think is a tricky one um, because it's very hard. I, I mean, you think about it, like Jesus would have offended so many people. Like seriously, I reckon so many would have gone away feeling pretty shocked and terrible about what he said. Um, but I think sometimes true gospel ministry and Bible teaching requires that people sit with uncomfortable feelings if that makes sense. I think the genuine teaching of God's word at times should leave people feeling uncomfortable. Did you have a question? Uh, yeah, you just made a list. You, you said take, wrongly taking responsibility for others for their decisions, their feelings. What was I had thoughts, feelings, experiences and decisions. So again, that's a tricky one, isn't it? Because we want people to make good decisions. And for me, with that example <coughs> of the lady I was meeting up with, um, it was very hard for me to just, um, rather than kind of rescuing, because I wanted to be seen to be doing a good job, um, to be able to give her space to make her own decision about whether she wanted to follow Jesus. And I realised, for me, a helpful diagnostic with that one was, I wasn't really praying for her. I was just trying to do a whole lot of stuff. And for me, it was, I had to really do a big shift there and go, you know what, at this point, I can't take responsibility for her decision 
as to whether she wants to actually put Jesus first in her life. What I can do, what I can take responsibility for is to pray for her. And that made a massive difference, actually. So that, for me, was a really helpful thing. Is, yeah, and that's a really good one. Is, is when I think about over-functioning, how much doing and how much praying am I doing? Because I think often if I'm not praying, I may well be in danger of overdoing for people rather than creating the space for them to make some of their own decisions, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so just more on that, are you saying when you come alongside someone, like mm. I am here, <laughs> so naturally you want to speak into whatever's happening. You want to, especially if you're seeing someone on the verge of making a poor decision. Just if you could say more about what what coming alongside <coughs> looks like. Because yep. obviously you don't want to abdicate mm. that. That's part of that. Yeah, that's right. right. I think that's right. What's coming alongside look like in pardon wisdom, suggestions, yep. Yep. without that's right, yeah. No, that's really good. I think I think what one of the things we do want to be doing is I think we do want to have a role, I think we do have a role in teaching and persuading. Like I think we actually, you know, I don't think we can abdicate that. I think we, we are there to be people who are in God's word and bringing people, bringing God's word to bear in people's lives. But I also wondered, I guess a question I would ask is, to what extent am I, in my conversations with people, how many questions am I asking them in terms of, am I speaking to them in a way that stimulates their best thinking about their own life and their best thinking about the way that the word of God needs to be brought to bear on their life rather than, and this is why I think it's helpful to be aware of that internal anxiety of, because if I start feeling, like I know I had it in ministry at times when I, if I was meeting up with with someone, like I think you can always tell when, if I've got that inner anxiety going on and I'm wanting to bring an outcome in the other person, I'm kind of wanting them to believe or I'm wanting them to go a certain way versus remaining in Christ, bringing God's word to bear and being able to ask questions that help that person do their own thinking around what God's word has to say to them. Does that make sense? It's, so I think that's, that's, there's a sense of coming alongside versus I'm kind of trying to drag you here out of something that's actually about some of my own distress and anxiety, if that makes sense. And I think it's really helpful to be aware of that, that internal meerkat kind of thing, like the, the anxiety response, which I think it's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because I think we should... Like we should care when people are making bad decisions, or we should care when someone chooses not to follow Jesus. So it's not about not caring, but it's to what extent am I being driven by anxiety or stress rather than a calm and thoughtful coming alongside, which is this person is responsible for their own life and their own choices, that I can speak truth into that. But I think there's a difference between a calm speaking of truth into something and helping that person think clearly about their own decisions and the consequences of those decisions versus I'm kind of actually probably not where I should be, which is I'm kind of in your space and I'm trying to bring about an outcome in you because I feel very uncomfortable. Does that kind of make sense? I don't know. It's a tricky one. Do you know? And sometimes it can be a, it's a, but that was just a helpful thing for me to think about is when I talked to someone just noticing my own 
stress and anxiety. And I think trying to be more aware of that so that I wasn't letting my own insecurity and stress kind of be in the driver's seat, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then that would kind of, in a sense, drive the conversation, it might be a pastoral conversation, but I'd be driving it a certain way and seeking an outcome in that other person rather than an outcome in myself, which is, it's my job um, to as clearly as I can to communicate the truth of God's word, um, to communicate the consequences of, of not, um, you know, of, of not um, trusting in Jesus, but also that I would be talking and helping you to think about your own life most carefully, if that makes sense. Rather, I want to, I kind of want to make you think what I think. I don't know, if you can just, yeah, you notice that I think that internal anxiety is a really helpful thing to be around, I think, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. The, the, what you said about the questions is really helpful. Yeah, that's right. So again, one of the little tips we have um, in counselling is we talk, we talk about what's called process questions. <coughs> so we tend to not ask people why. The question why often is a fairly limiting question that actually um, in a sense assumes that that answer is in a subjective space of that one person. But we tend to do what's called process, which is things like who, what, when, where, how, that kind of stuff. So again, it's trying to ask kind of open-ended process questions that get that, which gets that person doing their best and clearest thinking about their own life and the place of Jesus in their life. And it's not my job to rescue. It's not my job to convert. It's my job to be a, like this, just a little help idea is to be a resource, not a rescuer. Because Jesus is a rescuer, I'm not. But I can be a resource to people. <clears throat> so just to be mindful of where I am in that conversation in terms of have I kind of got hijacked by the anxiety and stress <coughs> and the expectation and all that sort of stuff, or am I able to a little bit more calmly and kind of tolerate the uncomfortableness um, at times of having people maybe disagree with me? Like when am I jumping in to try to change someone else versus managing myself a little bit more calmly? So where am I putting the energy? Yeah. Am I putting a bit more energy and focus into being who God would have me be? Or am I, or am I energy and... Like, I guess an idea with over-functioning is, am I more invested than you changing than you are? If that makes sense. Do you know, like, am I more invested, does that make sense? Than the person changing, than they're actually invested in their changing. And that's, again, one I've got to be really careful of in counselling, because you, know, you, want, you want people to have good outcomes. But it will not be an authentic outcome if that's not something that they're invested in. Mm -hmm. So my job is to calmly ask questions that help them to do their best thinking about their own life. Does that make sense? Rather than, um, yeah, I'm actually trying to, to bring about an outcome in you because right. I'm highly invested in you seeing it a certain way. Mm -hmm. yeah. That also leads, sorry, I'm going to Yeah, yeah. That also leads <laughs> you at times needing to make the tough call of, okay, we've been going around circles with this for a while. Mm -hmm. You're actually not at a place where, you, where, where, where you're going to make a good decision in this and I need to, I need to step away from this. Yeah. Heart, like this topic or the, like, yeah. it, as a bit of a self-preservation and yeah. also for them to, to hold that recognition for themselves. Like yeah. You, and that's, you're talking about it yeah. constantly, but you're actually not doing that's that. That's right. Like, is that an okay yeah. thing to I, do? I think so. And I think, again, a helpful question I think to ask yourself in, in those situations is, in this particular relationship, with the role I've, I've been given, with who God has made me to be, 
What am I responsible for? What am I not responsible for? And getting really clear on where I stop and start and where that person stops and starts. And kind of what am I willing to do? What am I not willing to do? And again, I just think ministry is so hard with that because we do. Like we never want to get to the point where we don't care about people's lives transforming. We want to be like that. We want to have that gospel heart. But I do think that we can really be in danger of burnout and emotional exhaustion when we kind of lose, you know, we kind of lose that, that difference, I think, of, of being able to see myself as separate yeah, to other people in that way. Yeah, I think that's a good example of when do I say, you know, I'm, I'm going to leave that with you. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is a bit of a specific situation, but I'm trying to counsel a girl uh, who's a bit intellectually slower um, to show her um, some sin in her life. Yeah. But she has taken things I've said and twisted it. So like I've said, you have free will, God will hold you accountable to what you're doing. And she goes, oh, so I can do whatever I want. And then, so how do you, I guess, I don't want to be, she's got a choice to make. She's not hearing what I'm saying in the way that I'm trying to make it clear how far do you go with people. Yeah, that's a really good question, isn't it? And I think that's a really interesting one as it pertains to people who might have be at different, you know, developmental stages or different intellectual abilities. Like a child, like I think in a sense, when you ask that question of what am I responsible for, that will be different when I think about my responsibility towards a child as to an adult. Um, I think in that one, I think it would be about getting really clear on, yeah, what am I responsible to do in this relationship as I want to, um, you know, bring, bring the Bible to bear in this person's life. Um, and I guess it's partly it's working out how can I be as clear as possible? How can I, again, with my own limitations, how can I try to um, teach God's word to you in a way that is calm and compassionate and clean and faithful to God's word? And then I think if the person doesn't understand, I think it's about being, a, like, again, it's that ability to say, kind of outcome in me rather than you, is if I'm fairly honest with myself about what I've brought to this. Are there things that I might need to change? Are there things that I might need to apologise for? Is there anything that I would do differently or could do differently? And if in that kind of calm, as you've gone away and thought about and reflected, if you kind of think, you know, within reason, I think I've done as good as I can do, I think sometimes it's then having to let that outcome rest with God. Does that make sense? Like, I think, again, it's getting clear on what am I responsible to do here? And what outcome would God have in me versus I'm desperate to get an outcome in you? Because in a sense, that's always going to be out of your control. But I think it's really helpful to spend that time reflecting on, are there things that I could have done differently? Are there things that I could clarify? Um, and, and that's a really, yeah, a really useful, like a good example when someone might have an intellectual disability, you absolutely might need to change the way in which you're doing things to make it more simple. But again, it's an interesting one, isn't it, that when people do misunderstand us, um, how prone we are to thinking that comes down to me, you know, and kind of taking the responsibility for that. Again, I think we need to be willing to ask ourselves those hard questions and, and being accountable to God in the way that we're behaving. But I think, again, it's, it's kind of getting a little bit clear on where does my responsibility finish? Yeah. And again, and, then, and I think that's the prayer space then. I mean, obviously, hopefully, the press face all the way through. But at that point, you think, you know, I think I've kind of exhausted all I can do here. Maybe I just need to stop and I need to pray. So I think when we head into that further space, 
that's often, I think, the anxiety-driven space. Yeah, that's kind of about fear and pleasing people or worry. Yeah. Um, so we've only got, oh, we're pretty much done. But I'll very, very quickly just talk about this one quick other one, which is triangles, because it pertains to what I said about ministers' wives. Very, very quickly. So, um, so another really classic repeated relationship pattern is what we call projection to a third or triangle. So you might have heard that. So again, if you think about it, the two, um, the two, the two squares up the top, the double lines equal kind of some kind of conflict. So just, just as an example, um, <clears throat> the minister of the church is in some kind of a conflict or has had some difficult altercation um, or there's just something going on that's kind of stressful and difficult with someone in the, in the church, in the congregation. Um, one of the most, again, it's this idea of when we feel stressed, we go into automatic default ways of relating. And one of the most default and automatic things we do when we feel stressed in a relationship is we talk to another person about it. Does that make sense? So, although the tension is here, so, for example, the minister goes home and he tells his wife because he's just so frustrated about, you know, this Bible study leader or this, you know, elder or, you know, member of management committee that he's just having a hard time with or someone that's criticised something that he's done and he's frustrated and he goes home and he talks to his wife about it. So, he feels marginally better because he's actually kind of downloaded that to her. You know, he kind of goes, oh, kind of got that off my chest. The next time the wife walks into church and sees that person, where does the anxiety belong at that point? She doesn't quite know what to say. Um, you know, she kind of, it's hard to make eye contact, but she knows that he doesn't know that she knows. Um, so that's just, I mean, very, very brief, but... I think the triangles and the way in which relationship stress and tension escapes from where it belongs to a third person is a, such a common, common thing in any kind of um, where you find people. But churches, I think, are absolute classics because I just think we're often, we're quite conflict diverse, um, which is fair enough because no one likes conflict and it creates anxiety and it, it feels like a threat. But yet, in terms of that idea of being in healthy and sustainable and responsible relationships, I guess the question is, what can I do as much as possible to keep the relationship problem where it belongs? Um, and if I do need to talk to a third party, because there may well be sometimes things get so complex that sometimes you, you may need to talk to someone to seek advice or accountability, to really think about the position that that puts that person in and to think about, can I de-identify that person? Could I talk to someone who doesn't know that person outside of my church? Because, again, one of the, I mean, I do it, you know, we all do it. As soon as we feel stressed out about something, we just, we automatically, um, basically detour the stress to that third person so that we quickly, it's kind of that idea of, when I feel stressed, I just want to quickly bring that stress down. The easiest thing is to kind of have a bit of a whinge to, to, you know, to someone at home about it or a close friend. And all it does, it actually just moves the stress around the triangle, if that makes sense. 
So interestingly, I think I really think that's probably one of the reasons why that's such a high statistic in that research about pastors' wives, as to why pastors' wives I think are so prone to forms of mental illness, is because I do think they can often be in a triangled position where they're actually not in a position of influence or power necessarily, but they're privy to a whole lot of information about people that compromises their relationship. Does that make sense? They're kind of constantly in these triangle relationships. So again, I think it's a really challenging one because we don't want to have marriages that are not open and honest, but I think it's very helpful to be aware of that as a relationship pattern. And again, what would it look like to be able to take that responsibility to deal with problems where it belongs so that I'm not inadvertently, because no one does this intentionally, it's out of fear and stress, but what can I do to not get so caught up in those triangles and to not inadvertently put a third person in a compromised relational position. Yeah. For those of us who are verbal processes, yes. how can we do this Don't in a healthy way? Yeah. So I think, I think we first of all got to really think, under God, am I, do I have the capacity with prayer and thoughtfulness with God do I have the capacity to deal with this? Like, actually, that should be our first point of call. Is can I actually deal with this with the person that it concerns without talking to anybody else? Yes. That's first point of call. It may not be possible. Do you know what I mean? Like, relationships can get very messy and very complicated. So that, you know, I think that's your first line of, of attack is can I be direct? Um, just a helpful little idea when we think about trying to detrangle is can I have separate, equal and open relationships with people? so that I'm not bringing others into it, so that I have my own relationship with you that's separate, we're equals, and it's open. So that's just a helpful idea. If I come down that next, I think, you know what, I don't have the capacity, I don't think to be able to manage this, this is complicated, this is difficult. My thinking, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I've lost my calm cognition and I'm kind of in the complete anxiety stress mode. I think I would think about those questions is, is there someone I could talk to about it whose relationship will not be compromised? Yeah. I think that's a question. Am I able to talk about, I think there's a big difference in, am I doing this as a quick download that quickly alleviates my stress versus a genuinely thoughtful wanting to process that out to be godly and wise? And I reckon all of us, if we're honest, like I totally know when I'm just going home and having a carry on to my husband about something. like. But that's not actually genuinely about wanting to think through things, you know, it's just wanting to make myself feel better, versus taking the time, do you know what I mean, to think it through, to, do, to be responsible for my own thinking, so that when I do go to that third person, <coughs> I'm not just doing the verbal download of muck, but I'm actually responsible in as calmly and thoughtfully, and do, having done my own thinking around it, does that make sense? And again, it's the idea of being aware of my own anxiety level, is this out of an anxiety, like is it a fear-driven interaction? Or am I actually bringing some calmness and clarity to this? Does that make sense? Because I think we're all, I think if we're honest, we all know why, why we do things, do you know what I mean? Like what is it contributes to, yeah, to those interactions, yeah. So I think we're probably all, I'm certainly aware of that in my life. Can you just tell me the do's and don'ts? Just do not do this, do best to do that. <laughs> um, so I, I guess what I'd say is, as much as possible, keep the problem where it belongs. As much as possible, yeah, keep your relationship problem where that belongs. 
Um, you know, something that really helps me yeah. is I talk to God about it. Yeah. Sometimes I, I practically vent to God, but I know He knows the details. Yeah. I don't have to tell Him anything and convince yep. Him anything. He knows and I think those are those beautiful examples of the like prayers of lament. You know, like those are raw, unprocessed downloads to God. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and I think if we think about triangling God, go go for it. Do you know what I mean? So I think that's right. I think there can be messy. And actually, sorry, I should, I'll just reflect forward. They're, they're, these are reflection questions that you've actually got there. Um, that book there, the, the, A Praying Life, he's got some awesome things to talk about that I do praying messy prayers. Um, so I think that's a really cool book um, about, I think it's actually a book store. Um, so I think that's one. I think, yeah, have I committed this to God? Have I actually been responsible to do my own thinking about the problem? Or am I, in a sense, detouring my own responsibility by trying to get the quick fix by downloading my problem to somebody else? Does that make sense? So it's this idea of when I think about relationship tension and stress, am I being responsible? Am I being responsible to keep it where it belongs? Or in my own stressful immaturity, am I quickly detouring it to give myself the quick fix because I don't want to tolerate the distress that I feel? That's just a bit of a do's and don'ts. Um, if someone comes to you, I'll give you a quick, before I let you go, because again, you'll probably often as ministry leaders be triangled, like people will come and talk to you about so-and-so. Again, the process questions are really helpful. Not jumping into fix to think about, is this my responsibility to fix? Or is it that person's responsibility? Where, again, where does the relationship problem belong? Is it my relationship problem? Or is it actually yours? If it's yours, can I ask you helpful, calm questions that help you to think about your own response? And under God, how are you processing this difficulty? What have you tried? What might be useful? Um, you know, would you like to, like, you know, would you like me to help you think about how you might talk to that person about that problem? So that's kind of this de-triangling techniques, using those questions rather than the quick jump in to fix and solve, which gets you caught up in a triangle and that's distress and burnout. Anyway, you probably need to finish there and let you guys go and have.